Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we are continuing our history of dentistry and oral health today. And we are basically picking up where we left off last time. So that puts us in the early 1800s. As promised, we are going to talk about dental chairs and amalgams to kick this one off. And we'll also talk a bit about some of the support careers in dental medicine and a little bit about orthodontics, although we're not going to get into a ton of specifics there because that's a huge field. Not going to talk about how braces work, so... Rest easy. Uh, As with the first part, there is only a little bit of squirmy stuff here and nothing is terribly graphic. Prior to 1832, there were no reclining dental chairs. In Pierre Fauchard's time, he had transitioned patients from the customary sitting on the floor for dental work into sitting in chairs. He recommended comfortable chairs with a back that was the right height to support a patient's tilted back head, as well as armrests, so they had something to grip. A surgeon dentist practicing in Boston in the 1790s named Josiah Flagg had added an adjustable headrest to a Windsor chair, and that had made what a lot of people call the first dental chair. His chair uh, had a handy arm that held the instruments, but it still required the patient to sit upright with their head tipped back. That wasn't exactly comfortable, even when nobody was doing anything in their mouth. 
But then in 1832, London dentist James Snell, who was a member of the Royal College of Surgeons, came up with a design that had an adjustable seat and backrest. A pump-type hydraulic chair was introduced 40 years later in 1877 by Basil Manley Wilkerson, and that let the patient be positioned horizontally. Yeah, if sitting up with your head tilted back doesn't sound uncomfortable, do it for like five minutes. <laughs> and then and then imagine someone trying to pull a tooth or do something else in there. Um, Samuel Stockton White helped expand the availability of dental chairs with his company, S.S. White Dental Manufacturing Company, starting in 1850. Even before he began offering chairs, White had become the primary U.S. supplier of porcelain teeth. The first patent for porcelain teeth had been issued in France to Nicolas Dubois de Chamon in 1790, so this idea of porcelain teeth was not new in the 1840s when White started manufacturing them, but he was the first to launch a successful commercial enterprise dedicated to their production. White continued to expand his business with chairs and dental tools and then began publishing a periodical simply titled Dental Newsletter, which was later renamed Dental Cosmos. S.S. White still exists today as a dental supplier. In 1833, a product called Royal Mineral Succadinium appeared in the U.S. as a filling amalgam for cavities. And the story behind it has some inconsistencies and fuzzy spots because it was being peddled by two charlatans called the Crocour. You may see the Crocour referred to as two French brothers or as an uncle and a nephew or sometimes as English instead of French. There are even theories there may have been more than two people using this name as a duo. It seems like the Crocour, whoever they were and however many of them there were, possessed a rudimentary grasp of dentistry. They probably got that in France. And then they appear in England at the end of the 18th century working as itinerant surgeon dentists. They slowly expanded their personal story to claim that they had been the surgeon dentist to several royal families. They said their specialty was filling teeth with their own special amalgam. But that amalgam was toxic. It was made with a large proportion of mercury and filings from silver coins. Aside from being, one, completely gross, and two, poisonous, this filling amalgam also expanded over time, so patients who had it often found that their teeth would later break or crack because of that expansion. And then to make matters worse, the Krakur didn't usually bother to clean out teeth before applying this amalgam. So even if their patients did not get cracked teeth, they would often end up with just horrible infections. Before the consequences of this awful dentistry could catch up with them in England, they moved to the U.S. to administer royal mineral succadinium to the masses here. In New York, they advertised their services as being performed in comfort and ease for the patient. They assured their gentleness as surgeon dentists, and this attracted a lot of business. Legitimate dentists were horrified and outraged, but the Krakur were making a lot of money until patients started getting sick anyway. In an effort to raise public awareness, some dentists started placing notices in papers telling patients what symptoms to watch for that might indicate that they had mercury poisoning. 
A society of surgeon dentists of the city and state of New York required members to sign a promise that they would not use amalgam. The Krakours vanished from the U.S. by the end of 1834. Amalgam had been demonized to a degree that most dentists just simply did not trust it. It's believed that amalgams used for dental fillings may date back as far as the 7th century in China due to a reference in a writing of a silver paste uh, that was referring to a tooth filling. But we don't know for certain what that may have consisted of. And most fillings that we do know of prior to the 1830s would have been made with silver or gold or tin. But the work of the Krakors made people deeply suspicious of amalgams. In 1839, the American Society of Dental Surgeons was formed, and that was the same year the first dental journal began publication. That was the American Journal of Dental Science. And amalgam was a big topic. Within seven years, the American Society of Dental Surgeons had decided that the use of amalgams was considered malpractice. They passed a resolution to require members to sign a pledge never to use it. But this actually led to several members resigning and then a lot of conflict within the organization. The requirement was no longer in place just four years later. Though some dentists continued to eschew amalgam use, others experimented with better quality materials, although it wasn't until 1895 that an amalgam recognized as workable and safe for patients emerged That was thanks to the work of Green Vardaman Black. He's going to pop up again here in a bit, so keep his name in mind. Uh, Today, amalgam is still used. It does actually still contain mercury, although that mercury is chemically bonded with the other materials in the mix to significantly decrease risk to patients. It's also certainly a higher grade than what the Krakours were using. Other filling options, though, are offered by dentists for patients who might be uncomfortable with the idea of amalgam or particularly mercury, including gold fillings, porcelain filling, and even a composite filling made with resin and powdered glass that can be color matched to the existing tooth. As dentistry grew as a profession in the early 1800s and things like the amalgam debate popped up, it was becoming apparent that there needed to be some structure around both education and regulation of the field. The first dental school was founded in 1840 by Dr. Horace H. Hayden and Dr. Shapin A. Harris with a charter from the General Assembly of Maryland. The Baltimore College of Dental Surgery offered a Doctor of Dental Surgery, or DDS, degree, and soon dental schools opened in other cities. They built on the model of education that had been established in Baltimore. That institution was consolidated with the University of Maryland in 1923, and it continues as the University of Maryland School of Dentistry. On the regulation side of things, the first U.S. state to address the issue was Alabama. In 1841, the state enacted the law regulating the practice of dental surgery in Alabama, which stated that, one, the medical boards of the state had to, quote, examine and license applicants to practice dental surgery. Two, people practicing dentistry without a license would have to pay a fine of up to $50 for each instance that they did so. Three, that any bonds or obligations made to practitioners who were not licensed were void. Four, that practicing dentists needed to have their license recorded in the county where they practiced. And five, all existing laws that contradicted this act were repealed by it. This all sounded pretty great, but it was not enforced, and only a few dental licenses were ever granted under this initial act in Alabama. 
Another topic that's come up a number of times on the show is anesthesia. William T.G. Morton is generally credited with the first successful use of anesthesia on a patient named Glenn Abbott for a surgery to remove a tumor from his neck in 1846. Previous attempts had not been successful, although a doctor named Crawford Long claimed that he had been successful before Morton. He had not published about his efforts in the field, though. Uh, yeah, you might recognize the name Crawford Long if you live in Atlanta. Yeah, I was like, is that the Crawford Long from Emory Crawford Long? It is the very same. Uh, there used to be a, a hospital named after him. Now it has a different name, but there's still signage that includes his name as part of a memorial. Coming up, we're going to talk about some of North America's early professional organizations for dentists. But first, we will pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. 
Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. The American Dental Association formed in 1859. The gathering where it was founded, which took place in Niagara Falls, New York, was catalyzed by ongoing concern about the need for regulation. Even though there were several dental schools producing new, well-trained dentists at that point, there was a greater demand than could be met by their graduates. So there was still this huge street dentist industry operating without training, oversight, or standards. Additionally, that whole drama and debate regarding amalgam had to some degree arrested the development of beneficial materials, and a regulated system could prevent another such event. There was also a concern about the use of advertising to lure patients and whether it was ethical to do so. Twenty-six dentists gathered in Niagara Falls to form this initial group and address these issues. Just 10 years later, in 1869, a splinter group formed called the Southern Dental Association, comprising dentists who had resigned from the ADA after the Civil War. The two groups remained separate for almost 30 years, and they finally combined again in 1897. They had a brief name change to the National Dental Association before reverting back to that original name. In another move to regulate, the National Association of Dental Examiners was founded in 1883 by sitting members of the dental boards from several states as a move to develop uniform standards of qualifications throughout the country. This group was formed not just to oversee dentists as a profession, but also to oversee state dental boards and legislation related to dentistry. The first woman to graduate from dental school in the U.S. was Lucy Beeman Hobbs, later Lucy Beeman Hobbs Taylor. She was part of the 1866 graduating class of the Ohio College of Dental Surgery. She's on the list for a future episode, so we won't go into her whole story here. But she had, unsurprisingly, a hard time getting accepted into dental school. That was after she had already been denied entrance to medical school. She had to really circumvent the system and learned on her own, practicing dental medicine out of her own established office for long enough that by the time she was admitted to Ohio College of Dental Surgery, it was pretty much a formality. She went to one session and then was given her degree. The Harvard University Dental School was the first dental school affiliated with a university. It opened in 1867 and had another milestone just two years later when the first Black man in the United States was given a dental degree. That man was Dr. Robert Tanner Freeman. He was the son of formerly enslaved parents. Freeman had applied to two other dental schools, and he had been denied based entirely on his race. He had been working as an assistant to a dentist for a while before that, so he was well qualified. After graduating, though, from Harvard, he practiced in Washington, D.C. for the next four years, but unfortunately he died suddenly from an illness uh, that was waterborne at the age of just 26. We mentioned dentifrice earlier when talking about John Baker, and this was a product, it was a powder that could scrub your teeth clean. And just as the practice of dentistry wasn't initially regulated, it took a long time for tooth cleaners to be regulated, and often they were really dangerous. Some powdered dentifrices were made with things like ground coral, which would clean your teeth, 
They would also strip them of their enamel. Those early offerings weren't mass-produced, though. Large-scale toothpaste production didn't start until the 1880s. This is when the move was made to package it in tubes, although initially the quality remained pretty hit or miss. By the early 20th century, toothpaste had become a standard part of oral hygiene, although there were still some powders being made. Toothbrushes similarly had sort of a late bloom, even though they had been around for hundreds and in some cases thousands of years in some form or another. It is believed that the first toothbrush to really resemble those that you would commonly see today was made in China in the late 15th century, that being like the bristles that are perpendicular to the handle. There were others that were developing in various places that looked almost more like a paintbrush where the bristles were an extension of the handle. And in the 17th and 18th century, similar toothbrushes to that one in China existed in Europe, but these were tended to be kind of fancy. They would often have ivory handles, and they were used primarily just by the upper class. For a long time, cloths or even sponges were used as the primary teeth-cleaning instruments for the average person, and it wasn't until the 1850s that toothbrushes were manufactured in significant quantity. The first patent for a toothbrush in the United States was issued in 1857. That went to none other than S.S. White Manufacturing. Nylon bristles were introduced in 1938 by DuPont. Up to that point, natural bristles like boar's hair were used. And the first electric toothbrush came out in 1960. As I was looking for pictures to put on our social media, I saw all of these old toothbrush pictures, and so many of them had bristles that looked more like the texture I would expect from, like, a hairbrush or a shaving brush and (laughs) (laughs) not a toothbrush. Seems like it would be very pokey on your gums. (laughs) Or too soft, like the other direction, too, in some Uh of them. It really is, yeah. Dentist Charles Edmund Kells of New Orleans was the first doctor known to hire women assistants to help in his practice, and that started in 1885. His first assistant was his wife, and his next hire for the job was a young woman named Malvina Queria. This was kind of a catch-all job, part receptionist, part dental assistant. It became trendy for dental offices to have women on staff in these kinds of roles leading to signs that read lady in attendance being commonplace at dentist offices. Having a woman on staff made it acceptable for women patients to come in for appointments without their husbands or another male relative to accompany them. Yeah, initially it seems sort of quaint and you're like, what are you doing? But it it really (laughs) made dentistry more um, available to a lot of people. For example, a single woman would have had a hard time if she didn't have a uh, male relative, like if she was truly on her own, mm-hmm. going to a dentist's office would have seemed kind of scandalous if there was not another lady present there. So it really did kind of shift accessibility in an important way. And this was, we should note, this uh, dental assistant role, very different than a hygienist, although the two positions were in some ways coalescing at roughly the same time. They have some overlap. Even though that started in the 1880s, in 1913, the first school for hygienists, the Fones Clinic for Dental Hygienists, opened in Bridgeport, Connecticut. That school was run by Alfred C. Fones, who had trained his cousin, Irene Newman, as a dental assistant, and then he started adding duties like cleaning and preventative care to her work. 
This began because Irene did really, really well with children at the practice initially, and so he thought that maybe she could work on those kinds of things with kids. The graduates of Phonus's program were actually hired by the Board of Education in Bridgeport to perform teeth cleaning clinics in schools. And because of this work, Dr. Phonus is known as the father of dental hygiene. In 1917, his cousin, Irene Newman, became known as the first person to have a dental hygiene license. Even though dental assistants were around for decades before hygienists, it wasn't until 1924 that the American Dental Assistance Association was founded. This group was created by Juliet A. Sothard and other dental assistants in New York. They had heard of other smaller dental assistant groups in places like Nebraska. In 1929, the ADAA established a scholarship for dental assistants that continues today, it is called the Juliet A. Southard Scholarship. Yeah, I was uh, impressed in doing this research that that scholarship was set up within just a few years of them establishing as a group. Although the first dental laboratory had opened in New York City in the 1850s, it wasn't until 1887 that a commercial dental lab opened that became the Stowe and Eddy Dental Laboratory. Prior to this, most dentists performed their own lab work, but once an industrial option was available, most practices started to hand off that kind of work that they were doing, like creating crowns and bridges, to labs, because the whole thing was a lot more efficient that way. In 1890, Ida Gray graduated from the University of Michigan School of Dentistry, and this made her the first Black woman in the U.S. to receive a dental degree. Her story in dental medicine started when she was a teenager living with her aunt, and she got a job working as an assistant to a dentist named Jonathan Taft. Taft was tasked by the University of Michigan with setting up their dental college just as Ida was graduating from high school. Taft advocated on her behalf for admittance and prepared her for the entrance exam. Once she had her degree, Ida opened up a practice in Cincinnati, Ohio, and she ran a very successful business. According to a book written about prominent Black women of the area in 1893, her clientele were evenly split among Black and white patients. She practiced for almost 30 years before retiring in 1928. She lived into her 80s, dying in 1953. Coming up, we're going to talk about some realizations about the causes and effects of some dental conditions, as well as the birth of orthodontics as a field. And we'll get into all of that after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary Evolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. The same year that Ida Gray received her dental degree, 1890, an article titled Microorganisms of the Human Mouth was published by Willoughby D. Miller. Miller lived and worked in Berlin, and he was a professor at the University of Berlin, but he was a U.S. citizen born in Ohio. Miller is credited with making the connection that bacteria led to tooth decay in a process that he described and which came to be known as the chemicoparasitic theory. Basically, when eating food causes sugar levels to rise in your mouth, bacteria gets right on in there to gnaw on that, and they produce acid, and that breaks down the tooth, and thus cavities. This idea that your mouth was full of microorganisms that were causing tooth decay really catalyzed the messaging that we still hear today, that healthy teeth and gums require regular brushing and flossing. While orthodontia, so the correction of irregularities in the teeth, had been practiced since the middle of the 19th century, it really wasn't recognized as a specialty for quite some time. In 1900, Dr. Edward Hartley Engel established the Engel School of Orthodontia in St. Louis, Missouri, This was just kind of formalizing lectures and training he'd been giving to other dentists for years by that point. He had been practicing orthodontia exclusively since 1892. The school's creation firmly established the field and earned Engel the nickname the Father of Orthodontics. It was a relatively short educational cycle of just a few weeks because the students were already licensed dentists who wanted training in this specific discipline. The American Society of Orthodontia, formed by one of his early graduating classes, was established in 1901 
And by 1907, the idea of focusing on orthodontics as a specialty became established enough that there was a journal, American Orthodontist. The American Board of Orthodontics was established in 1930. On February 13, 1906, U.S. patent number 812554 was issued to German chemist Alfred Einhorn for his invention, alkanine esters of para-aminobenzoic acid in search for an anesthetic that could replace the addictive and dangerous option of cocaine that was being used by the medical profession at the time, he had created a substance called procaine, which was later known by the more common name you probably recognize, Novocaine, meaning a new cane. Although Novocaine offered a less powerful anesthetic option, it was also so much safer than cocaine that dentists really embraced it. It was not, to be clear, the first synthetic anesthetic. Amylocaine was created two years earlier by Ernest Fourneau. And Novocaine wasn't created for dentistry. It was intended for general surgeries. But because it was a local numbing agent and not something that would make a patient unconscious, which most surgeons really, really wanted to be the case, surgeons did not really want to use it. But it was perfect for dentistry. Uh... I am 46 years old and just noticed the suffix cane on all of these (laughs) (laughs) analgesic products. In 1908, a two-volume book called Operative Dentistry was published by Green, Vardam, and Black. Mr. Black was really quite an interesting character in a variety of ways, but he's most known for his contributions to dentistry. Well, before the book we just mentioned came out, he had been an innovator in the field. He had invented motors for use with dental drills. He had patented improvements to the drills themselves. He had written about microorganisms and the ways they produce substances that can be poisonous to humans. He'd written books on dental anatomy and had created standards and practices for the treatment and filling of cavities that were adopted by dentists throughout the U.S. and Europe, just to name a few, Operative dentistry continued to standardize the field by establishing clear protocols for various procedures. Yeah, and if you recall earlier in this episode, we mentioned that he really formed the first stable, consistent amalgam that people were willing to use and recognized as safe. And because of all of these achievements, of course, lots of people wanted to meet with him, and he was invited specifically to speak to the Colorado State Dental Association in 1909. And that invitation had been catalyzed by a dentist named Frederick McKay, who had a practice in Colorado Springs. And this was really because McKay wanted to ask the esteemed expert about a phenomenon that he had noticed in a lot of his patients, rather intense brown stains on their teeth. This was so common in the area that it had the nickname of Colorado Brownstain. And when Black arrived in Colorado Springs, he too immediately noticed that even young children there had these stained teeth. The people with stained teeth, though, had what seemed like a natural resistance to tooth decay. To be clear, these were not any sort of um, early cavities or indicators of disease. It was literally just discoloration. So Black, who was intrigued, kind of worked on this puzzle until he died in 1915. But even after he died, McKay continued, and eventually it was discovered that waterborne fluoride was leaning to the staining. That staining is known today as fluorosis. And that discovery connected with the recognition that some fluoride exposure led to resistance to cavities, 
That led to the development of fluoridated drinking water with a level of fluoride that would confer health benefits to the tooth enamel without the negative cosmetic side effects of the staining. This work on developing fluoridation plans took decades, but in 1944, Grand Rapids, Michigan became the first city on Earth to have fluoridated drinking water. And 11 years of collecting data on the oral health of the children of Grand Rapids, it was determined that the rate of tooth decay in those children had dropped by 60%. Today, more than 200 million people in the U.S. benefit from fluoridation projects, and fluoride is touted as an ingredient in toothpastes and mouthwashes. All because of some stained teeth. In 1948, the National Institute of Dental Research was established by Congressional Bill, which was signed by President Harry S. Truman. This established an institution that could study issues of oral health in the U.S. with money from the federal government to back that research. One of the things that had motivated this was actually World War II, because a significant number of otherwise seemingly healthy men had been rejected for military service because they had missing teeth or significant dental disease. And this had indicated that this was a significant potential health issue for the country. The man selected to lead the NIDR was Henry Trendley Dean, He had been in charge of the dental division at the National Institute of Health beginning in 1931. And it was Dean who Frederick McKay had appealed to in that role to look at the fluoridation question more closely, which is what had led to the testing program in Grand Rapids. In 1950, two years into his tenure at the NIDR, Dean was featured in an article in Tick Magazine that was a trade periodical published by the Taconium Company. The article opened with, quote, the shape of things to come in dentistry is now being projected in research units, which are being augmented all over America. For the first time in history, a coordinated nationwide attack on dental disease is underway. This write-up gives some statistics about this program and mentions that 212 thousand dollars annually were being spent on research studies at the NIDR and that there were quote 36 separate projects underway at the time of the article's writing. Dean is quoted in the article as saying quote we are making it possible for the total resources of dentistry to be applied to the tremendous problems of dental disease on a scale never before possible. This is in a very real sense dentistry's own program with dentists participating in policy making and in program planning, with dentists supervising and directing research projects, and with dentists doing actual research themselves. NIDR's name changed in 1998 to the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research. In the 74 years since the Institute was established, there have been projects headed by the dental researchers that touch on a lot of issues, including cancer, arthritis, and cystic fibrosis, as well as many others. Yeah, they have done a number of studies, for example, of uh, HIV and AIDS and uh, bigger global issues of how, like, public health is impacting the populations of the world. They do a lot of cool projects there. Um, The dental field continues, of course, to evolve. Advancements like improved resins and products like at-home tooth whitening and even the use of lasers to treat tooth decay and gum disease are actually all pretty relatively recent developments in the field. There are an estimated 1.6 million dentists practicing globally, but even so, a lot of people are not getting adequate dental care. 
A U.S. News & World Report article from July 2021 reported that even before the pandemic, an estimated one-third of adults in the U.S. weren't getting regular dental care. Some of this is a money issue. The whole thing where dental insurance is a separate thing from health insurance and that even with the insurance, it's still really expensive (laughs) to have anything other than just like regular cleanings. It's a big issue. Uh, Some of it is an availability issue. For example, in rural areas, dentists are often a lot farther away for most people or practices that exist don't have enough hygienists or dental assistants to serve their communities. People are also just scared of the dentist. Yes. Uh, And on a global scale, according to the World Health Organization's report, Global Burden of Disease Study 2019, oral disease, often preventable, because we're talking about things like tooth decay and gum disease being the most prevalent in their statistics, those diseases affect nearly 3.5 billion people worldwide. And one of the biggest problems, according to that report, is, quote, unequal distribution of oral health professionals and a lack of appropriate health facilities to meet population needs. So we've come a long way, but we still have some big problems to solve. Yeah. Yeah, and there are so many health issues that can be connected back to untreated dental problems. Uh, yes, I kind of hate it. The whole division uh, between between dentistry and medicine is like, that's a whole other topic, but it's one of those things that I find really frustrating just in my own everyday life. Yeah, I... um. Like I said, I was terrified of the dentist for a long time and then found the right dental practice for me, uh, which I will talk about in our behind the scenes. And it has made all the difference on Earth. Um, I also have some fun listener mail. This made me laugh so hard. Uh, It may just be me, but (laughs) it hits all of my key delight points. So this is from our listener, Betsy, who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. The microwave episode brought back memories of my family's first microwave, which we got probably in the early 70s. My mother wanted one, but it was expensive. So while my father was on a week-long fishing trip, she was a bit annoyed about that, she bought the microwave. We tried all sorts of cooking experiments that week. The most memorable one was a cake. It came out very odd-looking on the surface, bumps, divots, ridges, and holes. My brother and I decorated the cake with paper flags on toothpicks labeled with names of features of the moon, because the cake definitely looked like the surface of the moon. Thanks for sparking a walk down memory lane with my mother about our first microwave. She does not remember the moon cake, Betsy. (laughs) Betsy, I love the idea that to kids came up with this idea of labeling a cake with all of the features of the moon. This is like a magical bit of imaginative uh, interaction with food, and I'm all behind it. Now, I want to make a moon cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the moon. As you may or may not recall, I have a tattoo of the first map of the moon. Oh, yeah! <laughs> um, on my leg. <laughs> So the idea of making a cake that looks like it, even more hilarious and wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing this with me. Now I want to make some microwave cake and just uh, probably won't label it. I'll just eat it. But if you would like to write to us about your uh, successful or not microwave cakes or anything, uh, you know, we've said many times, animals, foods, anything in our episodes, whatever delights you. 
Still loving those recipes? Keep them coming. Uh, you can do so at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And you can subscribe to the show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.